0: Over the past few decades, Uh, a large number of Christian writers and pastors and uh, theologians and thinkers have quite rightly, I think, lamented the fact that Christianity has often become known for what it is against instead of what it's for. And the observation is that so often when you think about uh, Christians or people think about or talk about Christians or Christians get... um, Showing on the media in some kind of way, um, if you ask different people randomly on the street well, what, what's, what comes into your mind when you think about Christians, so often the, the image around Christianity and the ideas around it become incredibly negative. We're much more known for what we oppose and disagree with and don't like than we are for, for the good parts of our faith. And there's a sense in which you can't escape the fact that part of the message of Christianity is some pretty bad news. We are sinners. We've rebelled against God, and evil lurks in the heart of every single one of us. That's just part of the message. But it's only part of the message. And in fact, the, the Christian faith is described in the scriptures as good news. So while there is bad news as part of that, while there are some things that that, that the Christian faith and and the Bible stands up and says this is wrong, the truth of the matter is that Christianity is actually a very encouraging and beautiful message. The beautiful message is that despite our brokenness and fallenness and the mess we make of our lives, God is a Father who loves and he loves the world he's created. He loves men and women that he made in his image, even though we've rebelled against them, and even though we're broken and even though we've fallen and have turned our back on him. And he loves us enough that he became one of us, put on flesh, became a human being, lived in this world, experienced the hardship and the heartache and the difficulty, lived and obeyed perfectly when we can't, And then died on the cross to take our sins and the punishment for those on himself. And then rose again, as we saw last week, victorious. So that now, any of us who come to him and put our faith in him and give him our lives, we are now brought back into the relationship that we were always created to have. That is amazing news. And it's just sad that along the way, increasingly in the Western world, the church is not known for the good news. The church is not known for the wonderful message of who God is and what he has done for us in Jesus. Instead, we're known for what we oppose. And that's one of the reasons why I love this letter of First Peter that we are going through this year as a church. Because First Peter, I think, actually highlights the way that we are meant to live which accentuates the beauty and the wonder of the Christian message. I have been arguing all the way through uh, this series that the key verses in this ancient letter that the Apostle Peter wrote so many years ago, the key verses are these ones from the middle of, of 1 Peter chapter 2, where Peter wrote, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul, And live such good lives among the pagans, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. I've argued that these verses which start the the second middle chunk of this letter, really not only uh, lay out what the the middle part of this letter is about, but actually really lay out what the whole letter is about. Because what Peter does following verses 11 and 12, uh, as we've seen over these last number of weeks, all the way through the rest of chapter 2 and into chapter 3, is he's really expounding verse 12. He's been going after this idea of what a good life looks like, an attractive life, a beautiful life that's lived for the glory of God. So he's told us as citizens and as servants and employees, we had to live uh, submissive lives. We had to, to deliberately and willingly place ourselves under others and serve them. He's told us that as husbands and wives, we had to cultivate humble, uh, servants-like, self-giving, uh, loving marriages so that other people would look at our marriages and see something attractive about the, the beauty of Jesus. He's told us that in our relationships with others generally, we are to be humble and compassionate. And when we are mistreated, we're not to respond harshly, but to respond with graciousness and love. And what he's been doing all the way through is he's simply trying to help us see what this attractive and good life looks like that glorifies God. That's what he's been on about. He's just keeping hitting this drum continually. This is a good, attractive, beautiful life that glorifies God. So having done that all the way through to the end of chapter 3 where we finished last week, today we come to the beginning of, of 1 Peter chapter 4. And if you've got a Bible either here at Botany or Hastings or you're listening to this on the internet, I'd love you to pull, up, uh, pull out your phone or grab a Bible and come with me to 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. The chapter divisions are in the wrong place. If I could redo the chapters of our Bible, I would have three chapters in 1 Peter. The first chapter would, would go to just before these verses. And then the second chapter would begin with these verses and go all the way to chap- what is chapter 4, verse 11 in our Bibles. And then the third chapter would begin in chapter 4, verse 12. And there's three main sections to this. So we're coming towards the end of this middle chunk of the letter. And Peter has spent all this time expanding on what it means to live this good life, what that should look like in our lives. And as he comes now towards the end of this section, he flips the coin over. Because the two sides of the coin are, on one side, positively, we're to live attractive and beautiful lives that glorify God, but the flip side is what we read in verse 11, that we are to abstain from sinful desires. So positively... Peter's whole thesis is we are to live lives that showcase the grace and compassion and beauty of God. Negatively, the other side of the coin is what that looks like, is a life that abstains from sin. And having spent a chapter and a half now, expanding on verse 12, I want to argue that this little section we're in now, at the beginning of 1 Peter chapter 4, he's now coming to expand verse Verse 11. He's now going to help us understand what it looks like for us to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against our soul. And so that's where we're going to be today. My big idea today is simply this. I want to give it to you right up front and then we're just going to kind of flesh it out as we go. But this is the key idea. Living good lives, because that's been the whole point all the way through this letter, living good lives means consistently choosing not to live bad lives. So living good lives has meant a whole bunch of things, being submissive and humble and gracious and loving, all the way through this letter. But now what Peter adds to all of that is, and another part of living a good life, is deliberately, consistently choosing not to live a bad life. It's to abstain from the evil desires which wage war in our souls. And that's what Peter is going after in this next little section here. Uh, this section, this part, 1 Peter 4 verses 1 to 6 is quite simple in terms of its basic structure. He gives one command up front and then he just gives three reasons for why we're to live that way. There's, there's only one command, one imperative in this whole section which we're going to hit first in verse 1. And then he gives three reasons why we're to do that. So rather than some of the other parts we've gone through in chapters 2 and 3, where he's more been answering the how question of how we should live a good life and what that looks like, this time what he's doing is why. Why should we work hard in our battle against sin? And he's going to give us three reasons. But before we look at the reasons, let's look at the command itself, which is in verse 1. If you've got uh, a Bible there in front of you or your phone uh, turned on. So 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 1 says this, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourself also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. You'll notice that he starts the section with the very important word, therefore. So he's linking back to the section we looked at last week, which if you weren't here last week, you missed out on one of the toughest passages in the entire New Testament to understand. Well, at least parts of it. But last week we were reading verses 18 to 22 of 1 Peter uh, 3 where he was describing the fact that Jesus died, but he didn't just die and suffer for our sins, he rose again and he's now been exalted and enthroned and vindicated at God's right hand. (coughs) Excuse me. What he's doing now, therefore, he says in verse 1, since Christ suffered in his body, is he's taking us back to verse 18. He's taking us back to the previous section, but in particular to the idea that Jesus suffered. And one of the points Peter made when he talked about the death of Jesus that we saw last week was it says in verse 18 that that Jesus uh, suffered once for sins. In other words, he paid the penalty of sin through his death on the cross and that took care of sin once and for all. He's now picking up that idea in this section. And what he's saying is since Christ suffered in his body once for sin, Arm yourself with the same attitude because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. See, in other words, he's saying Jesus dealt with sin once for all and that was it. And he says, so we are meant to be like Jesus. We are meant to say we're done with sin as well. That's the idea, the attitude, the mindset of Jesus that he's highlighting in verse 1. Jesus dealt with sin and it was done and if we are with Jesus if we're followers of Jesus we ought to be done with sin as well we're to adopt the same mindset as him so what does that mean? what does it mean for us to be done with sin? there have been a few writers through the centuries that have tried to argue that that means we should never sin again and uh, just put your hand up if you've never sinned since you came to Jesus good so that ain't likely. Okay, that's not, that's not realistic at all, and it's not, nor is it biblical. The fact is we continue to struggle with sin, and that is the normal course of life as followers of Christ. We're not perfect. We haven't won that battle, and we're not going to be done with sin until Jesus calls us home. That's why the New Testament is full of commands for us to work at this and fight this battle. So it doesn't mean, to say, when Peter says we're done with sin, he's not saying that we've conquered sin or we can be finished with sin or we can be perfect. That is why, um, for example, John would write in one of his letters, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth isn't in us. That's just not realistic. It's not for real. We struggle with sin. But, John says... If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us. The biblical picture is we're not completely finished with sin if we're followers of Jesus. It's not like we never have to battle with us. It's not like we we never struggle with temptation. It's not like we never fall flat on our face. We do. And John tells us whenever we fall flat on our face, whenever we give in, whenever we make a mistake, we just come back to Jesus again and find his grace and forgiveness again and carry on. And we can never outdo, we can never stuff up enough that we run out of God's grace. So, if when Peter says here at the end of verse 1, we are to understand that whoever suffers in the body is done with sin, if, if to be done with sin doesn't mean we no longer sin anymore, what does he mean? I think what he means is that we're to adopt a mindset or an attitude, because that's what he's referring to, that says, you know what? I don't want to live that way anymore. It means we're getting serious with sin. That's the idea I think Peter's underlining. It's very similar, I think, to what Paul wrote in Romans 6, where he used these words, count yourself dead to sin, but alive in Christ Jesus. In other words, he's he's saying, adopt this attitude, decide, resolve that you're done with sin. You're dead to it, and you're alive to him. Paul would go on and say, don't offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of righteousness. In other words, don't offer yourself towards um, committing sin. Instead, you offer yourselves to God as an instrument of righteousness. It's about making a decision day after day after day that you're going to be serious about sin and you're going to do battle with sin and you are dead to it because you now want to live for God. That's what Peter's going for. His command is essentially this, get serious about sin. And I think it's incredibly important for us to hear this. Because I think in Peter's day and in our day, we live in societies that because sin is so accepted and so celebrated, and we're going to see some of that in the next few verses, it's kind of like the, the tone of the culture we're in is to just oh, let it go and let it ride and don't be so serious. And so I think Peter is, is, is laying down this emphasis, no, you know, you know what? We need to take this seriously. We need to be serious about sin and about re- making a resolution, resolving every day, I want to live for God. And I I want to abstain from these desires which war against my soul so that I can live a good and attractive and a beautiful life that glorifies him. That's really, I think, the call that Peter is making. And I love the imagery that he uses. Did you notice the the metaphor that he's playing with in verse 1? When he gives this command, arm yourself with the same attitude. Peter here is using the, the imagery of warfare. What's fascinating is he only uses warfare language twice in his whole letter. When Peter uh, sorry, when Paul in some of his letters talks about warfare um, he talks about warfare primarily in doing battle with the demonic uh, world with, with evil forces, with Satan and his demons. So that's what spiritual warfare to use that terminology looks like in Paul's letters. In Peter he only uses warfare language twice. Here where he calls us to arm ourselves with the mindset of Jesus. And back in chapter 2, verse 11, where he said we're to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against our souls. So for Peter, the war isn't against the forces of evil and darkness. Although that's true, he'll talk about the devil at the end of his letter. For Peter, the war is in here. Peter uses the language of warfare to describe the daily, hourly, minute-by-minute struggle that I have and that you have against the desire to sin. He says, "That's that's the war we're fighting. And we are to arm ourselves with the attitude of Jesus who said, I have dealt with sin once and for all. So what Peter's calling for is for followers of Jesus as part of a good and beautiful life to say, I am resolving to fight these desires. I am resolving to the best of my ability in the power of his spirit in response to his beautiful grace. I want to I not give in. I want to live a good life. I don't want to give in to evil. I don't want to give in to temptation. I'm resolving today. Today. To be serious about sin and honoring him. When Jesus talked about uh, sin, one of the ways he described it was like this in Matthew chapter 7. Because of the the Pharisees and their um, preoccupation with outward righteousness and trying to look holy, Jesus turned around in, in Mark's gospel and said it's what comes out of a person that defiles him. It's from within, within the heart of mankind that come evil thoughts and sexual immorality and theft and murder and adultery and coveting and wickedness and deceit and sensuality and envy and slander and pride and foolishness. All of these things, Jesus said, come out of within and they defile us. We're not evil because of what's around us. We're evil because of what's in us. And Peter's calling us to take that seriously. That if you struggle with anger, it's because anger's in your heart. You struggle with lust, it's because lust is in your heart. You struggle with gossip and slander, that's because that's deep in you. You struggle with materialism, that's, it's, it's from us. It's from within us. And the war, Peter says, is with these desires that lurk in our hearts. And the call from Peter is, let's get serious about sin. Let's live good lives for him. And part of living a good life, part of that, he's already told us, is a life of humility and a life of submissiveness and a life of compassion. But part of it is a life where we are consistently choosing day by day, no to evil. I don't want to live a bad life. And part of living a good life is, is winning this war and taking sin seriously and saying no. No. So that's the key command. That's the idea that he's bringing out. Then what he does in the next five verses is he gives three reasons for why we should take sin seriously and why we should arm ourselves in this battle and why we should consistently work to win this battle against the desires that flow out of our hearts. So reason number one is in verse two. Here's what he says. The NIV writes, As a result... They do not live the rest of their earthly lives, this is talking about followers of Christ, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. What Peter's talking about is life now if we're followers of Jesus. So he's saying one of the reasons we're to be serious about sin is because now, having become a follower of Jesus, our heart is actually that we want to live for him. We have this desire deep in us to live for God. The key part to understand what verse 2 is on about is that little phrase, the rest of their earthly lives. So what Peter's doing is he's kind of taking a a timeline of your life and mine, and he's going, something tremendously important happened when we came to faith, and something amazing is going to happen when we either die or Jesus returns and we go to live with him forever that's the present life we're in before we came to Jesus is the past and after we die or Jesus returns and we go to heaven and we no longer struggle with sin that's the future and the three reasons he's going to give us is going to deal with the past and the present and the future but he starts with the present so he says, something happened when you trusted in Jesus. You became a recipient of his awesome grace. And now the rest of our earthly lives, from the moment we're saved to when Jesus comes back or we die and go to be with him, for the rest of our earthly existence, he says, and then he does this contrast. We don't live for, our, for evil human desires instead, but we live for the will of God. So what he's trying to say there is that now that we've come to faith, we've had a change of heart. The Holy Spirit's done something miraculous in us and changed our hearts so that our basic heart cry as a follower of Jesus is I want to live for him and I want to live for the will of God. See, that's how Jesus lived. That's the mindset of Jesus that he talked about in verse 1. Jesus would talk consistently about this. For example, John 4. He said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. Or John 6, I've come from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Jesus would often talk about he had come to fulfill the Father's will, to do the Father's will. And what Peter is saying is if you're a follower of Jesus, then the Holy Spirit is now in you and has actually fundamentally changed the, the the direction the 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 way that your heart functions. There's still sin. You still struggle with that. That's part of our lives till we die. But the basic heart cry now is that I want to live for the will of God. That's what He's saying. Something fundamentally has changed. And so one of the reasons that we. Uh, should really uh, take sin seriously and go after this battle and seek to live for God is because deep down that's what our heart desires. We don't want to give in to those passions anymore. The deepest part of us wants to live for the will of God. It's what Paul was writing about in Romans twelve one and 2, famous verses. We said, I urge you in response to the mercy and grace of God to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is true and proper worship. Don't conform to the pattern of this world anymore. Don't give in to those desires. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind, then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. See, to live for the will of God is actually key. And what Peter, I think, is saying is the first reason we're to get really serious with sin and take on the mindset of Jesus and arm ourselves for this internal battle that we face every single day is because our heart deep within us is actually that we want to honour God. We want to live for his will. And that's something I've noticed as a pastor time and time again. When I've sat and talked with people, followers of Jesus who love Jesus, but struggle deeply with sin, with addictiveness to alcohol, or a struggle with pornography, or this ongoing battle with, with their words or their anger, What I have found is that whenever I sit and talk with a Christian who is struggling and battling with sin and more often than not feeling defeated, like they're they're, they're losing more often than they're winning and they feel discouraged and wanting to give up, what I've discovered is that if I say to them, what would you really like? What do you really want to see happen in your life? What they say is, I don't want to live like this. I want to live for God. That's my heart. And that's what Peter's saying. One of the reasons that we should get serious about sin and arm ourselves and take this internal battle seriously is because that's actually what we want, isn't it? The Holy Spirit has changed us. And we may struggle with sin, and you may be sitting there today listening to this wherever you are and feeling like, yeah, I, I'm a follower of Jesus, but I'm feeling defeated. I feel like I give in to this all the time. Whatever the sin is that I struggle with most, I don't feel like I ever win. And what Peter is saying is, keep going. Keep battling. Keep taking this seriously. Why? Because he says, because that's actually deeply what you want, isn't it? More than anything... You want to live for God. That's why we get depressed when we give in to sin. That's why we beat ourselves up when we we fall over again and again and again. Because deep down we want to honour God. And so Peter's saying tap into that. Remember, that's the cry of your heart. So let's take the battle for sin seriously because our deepest desire is his followers because the Spirit is in us is that we actually do want to live for him, in spite of the fact that we get it wrong so many times. So that's the reason in the present. The second reason he gives takes us back to the past, to before we came to faith. Look at verses 3 and 4. He says, for another reason, second reason, verse 3, for you've spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, detestable idolatry. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless wild living, and they heap abuse on you. So the second reason, Peter says, that we're to be serious about sin, about this battle that's within us, is because he's honestly, look back on your life. What a waste. All of the stuff you used to do before you came to Jesus, you suddenly realise, what a waste of life. Really, is that what I gave myself to? Is that what I thought would be fun? Is that where I thought I'd find satisfaction and joy and meaning? It reminds me, actually, of um, one of the final scenes of the movie Schindler's List. Maybe a while before, since you've seen that, or you may have never seen it, but Oskar Schindler was a, a German industrialist in World War Two, And uh, in this movie uh, directed by Steven Spielberg that kind of celebrates his life, He saved the lives of over a 1,000 Jewish people by getting them into the factories um, where they could be saved from being sent to the extermination camps. At the end of the movie, the the Russians and the Americans are closing in on Germany and Oskar Schindler and his wife need to flee. And so one night in this camp where these 1,000 or more Jews have come, uh, Schindler and his wife are preparing to leave. And as they walk out in the night to go to their car, all of the Jewish people have come together to say farewell. And they give him a, a ring that they have made to, to remember them and the lives that he saved. And Oscar Schindler breaks down in tears. And he says, how many more people could I have saved? How, how much have I wasted my life? You know, if I'd only done this, if I'd only done that, I could have saved so many more. And the Jewish people are trying to say to him, no, you've saved all of us. And he's saying, I know that, but how many more? As I look back now on my life, Schindler says, what a waste. And that's true for us if we're Christ followers, isn't it? You look back uh, before you came to faith, you look back on some of the stuff you've done in the past. Regret is a very real word, isn't it? And that's what Peter's saying. We get to the point in our lives where we look back on some of the stuff we've done, some of the ways we've lived. And and it just reminds us to get serious with sin because to live like that is such a waste of this life that God has given us. The list of sins here that he gives primarily focus on three key areas the misuse of sex, the misuse of alcohol. and and the misguided worship and idolatry, the focus on other things, thinking they'll bring us satisfaction. It's very reminiscent, actually, with a similar list that that Paul gave in Romans 13. uh, where He said, let's live decently, not in carousing or drunkenness. Those words are in 1 Peter 2. Not in sexual immorality and debauchery. Those ideas are here too. Not in dissension and jealousy. It's a very similar idea. And what Peter and Paul are saying is that while sex is a good and beautiful gift from God, it is only to be enjoyed and experienced the way God designed it, which is in a marriage between a husband and a wife. To go outside of that is wrong. And Peter is trying to draw a line under that quite deliberately. Obviously, for his Gentile readers, many of them had come from a past where they had just slept around and done whatever and not cared about it. And he's kind of like drawing a line in the sand for them and saying, no, no, this is what God has said. This is what his gift of sex is for. Don't go beyond that. Let's get serious about that sin. It's the same with alcohol. Three words in here. Uh, Drunkenness, orgies, and carousing are all describing wild parties of boozing and getting plastered. And if they'd had drugs, they probably would have got high at the same time. And he's going after that and going, no, draw a line under that. If you're a follower of Jesus, that stuff doesn't happen anymore. There's nothing wrong with alcohol, with a glass of wine or a beer per se. But the abuse of that and drunkenness and wild parties are out for Christians. And so too, he says, is detestable idolatry. Trying to find our satisfaction and meaning and worship and life and stuff that's not to do with us. Now, in, in the Roman Empire of Peter's day, this was crazy. Verse 3 describes normal life for most people in Rome and right across the empire. So for Christians not to engage in that is insane. And it's exactly the same in our world. It was the same when I was at high school. It's the same for my, my kids who are now in high school. This is, in, in, in our society, this is not. this is fun. This is normal. And Peter's coming along and Paul's coming along and saying, no, that is not what we do as followers of Jesus. And we need to draw a line under that kind of living and be serious about it. This is radical life. And that's why he will say then in verse 4, they are surprised that you don't join them. I remember the first party I went to in high school where there was alcohol being served, and I I, I went knowing that alcohol was being served, but I went along anyway with friends. And I remember walking in, and and they were serving drinks. What do you want? I said, I'll have a Coke. And, And that's just the look on people's faces. Like, there is free booze, and you want a Coke. And I deliberately had no alcohol that night, simply because I just wanted to make a statement, draw a line in the sand and be serious. Now, I have no problem with having a beer, but not with drunkenness. And I just remember that the shock on people's lives. Even now, standing with parents on the sideline of a football game. This happened to me about a month ago. And the dads are standing in a little bit of a circle before Jaden's game started and having a chat. And one of them starts talking about the booze-up from last night. And they're laughing and joking, and isn't this great? Man, there's, there's, it's quite an awkward feeling standing there, especially as a pastor, but more as a Christian. You know, I'm not celebrating that. I'm not laughing along. And that's why Peter describes us in his letter as foreigners and exiles, because you feel kind of like an ET, an alien, on the outside of that conversation. And that's why Peter is saying in verse 4, We're not to live in these kinds of sins. We need to be serious about using sexuality and using alcohol in the ways that God says is okay without going beyond that. And what that will mean is that people in verse 4 are going to be surprised and they're going to look at you weird And end of verse 4 and they will heap abuse on you. Why? Because... You're not joining them in their reckless wild living. I wish the NIV hadn't changed how they translate that little phrase. It's not bad. You don't join them in their reckless wild living. But in the previous versions of the NIV, this is how they translated that phrase. They think it's strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation. I think dissipation could have gone, actually. That was weird. (laughs) But they think it's strange. They're surprised you don't plunge with them into the same flood of wickedness. That's the literal metaphor that Peter had in mind. I don't know how many of you have participated in those ridiculous things called a midwinter swim. I just think it's insane. But I've seen the images of TV, and maybe some of you have participated in that, but I resisted that battle, but it's all right. But you see people lined up in the middle of winter on a beach. Some of them clothed in wetsuits, but some of them just in in togs or shorts or something ridiculous. And at the go, they all run together into the stinking cold midwinter water. That's kind of the imagery that Peter's got in mind. That everyone is plunging into sin and your non-Christian friends are surprised that you don't join in. But they're not plunging into the midwinter ocean. They're plunging into a flood of wickedness. They're plunging into an open sewer, is the idea. And Peter is saying to his readers, many of whom have come from that lifestyle, have been there, done that, and now regret it. He's saying to them, look, get serious about these kinds of sins. Why? Because honestly, don't you look back on that life? And go, what a waste. What was I thinking? Let's not go there. Let's resolve to not live that kind of life. Thirdly then, the third reason. If we've done the present and the past, the third reason will be the future. Pretty clear. Verses 5 and 6. Peter says, let's get serious with sin because one day God is going to judge sin. Let me read verse 4 as well so we get the flow of what Peter says. They're surprised that you don't join them in their reckless wild living as they plunge into the sewer. And so they heap abuse on you. But, verse 5, they will give account to him who was ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. Verse 5 is very clear, verse 6 is kind of murky. Verse 5 is saying, these people right now, because you don't engage in this kind of sin with them, they look at you and think you're nuts, and they judge you, but, verse 5, one day they're going to stand before the judge, and they are going to give an account. And so the reason we're to be serious about sin is because we realise that sin is serious. And one day, the judge of all things, the creator of mankind, is going to judge all of humanity. And the people who pour scorn on you today, they're going to stand before him. And that is serious stuff. Revelation describes it this way John says, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne of God, and the books are opened. Which seems to be the books of everything every human being has ever thought and ever said and ever done and ever failed to do. And then another book he said is open which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what was written in the books according to what they had done. Every person. And then a couple of verses later he says and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life he was thrown into the lake of fire. There is serious eternal judgment And Peter's saying we need to be serious with sin because God takes sin seriously. And the way to escape that judgment is not to to try and work hard and fill your book with lots of good deeds because that's not what's in the books. And our good deeds can never outweigh the bad deeds. The way to escape the judgment of God is to make sure that our name is written in that one book, the book of life, which happens by putting our faith in Jesus Christ. So verse 5 is saying we need to be serious with sin because God takes sin seriously and he's going to judge it one day. And then verse 6 comes along, which is kind of really hard to understand. It could mean one of two things. The NIV translates it this way. There's parallel going on. The NIV says the gospel is preached even to those who are now dead. So it's talking about Christians who have now died. So people who have heard this good news message and have trusted in Jesus, but they're now dead. And the NIV says, these people, fellow Christians who are now dead, were judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. So the way the NIV's rendered it, it seems like it's talking about Christians who have died, who may have been mocked by people who didn't follow God. So they may have been judged by other human beings for, for trying to live a good life before God. So they were mocked, but, he says, they will be vindicated by God. That's one way of understanding verse 6. different way of understanding verse 6 comes from the way the ESV, English Standard Version, translates it. That the gospel is preached even to those who are dead, that, they, that though judged in the flesh... They might live in the spirit. So the way the ESV is understanding that, I think, is that these people, they were Christians, and they didn't live this kind of life, and then they died, and so non-Christians were going, well, what was the point of living that kind of life? You still die? But Peter's point is, yeah, but but they're going to be raised to life. It's a little hard to know which way it goes. I tend towards the way the NIV's done it. I think it's about them being mocked, but ultimately being vindicated. But at the end of the day, what Peter's saying is, it's going to be worth it in the end. Just like it was worth it in the end in the previous section for Jesus who suffered for our sins, but then rose and is now enthroned and vindicated, one day we're going to be vindicated. And so it's worth us struggling with sin now and trying to honour God. Scott McKnight, one commentator, just explains this way. He says, Peter knows how difficult it is to fight off pressures for acceptance and conformity. He knows Christians seek to live holy and good lives. He knows that you'll need to have special faith and courage to endure. And then he says, my contention is that what Peter wants you to focus on, is that, sorry, there is that Peter wants you to focus on the final day when God will bring justice. See, Peter's saying, get serious with sin. This is a battle we're in. And the battle's not only with the forces of evil. Paul was right. That's true. But actually, the other battle is in here. The other battle is with the, the emotions and the desires and the temptations that, that are deep in our hearts and souls. And Peter says, be like Jesus. Decide today. I'm done with sin. I'm going to fight these desires, and I'm going to do my best to live for the glory of God. Why? Because now, as a follower of Christ, that's my heart's desire. And as I look back on my life, I realize what a stupid way that was to live. And as I look forward to the future, I realize God takes this serious. And one day I'm going to be vindicated for living this kind of life now. So I'm going to take this seriously. I'm going to fight this fight as best I can. And you know what? There will be days I fall on my face. There will be days I give in to temptation There will be times I will feel so ashamed before God that I've given in yet again to that same uh, temptation and sin I keep battling with. But I'm going to keep fighting. I am resolved to arm myself with the mindset of Jesus and get serious with sin. Because that's part of what it means to live a good life for God. An attractive life and a beautiful life, part of that is consistently choosing not to live a bad life. So we finish this morning. I'm going to get Andre and maybe a couple of others to help him. just want to pass out to you a, um, just a little piece of card today. This big idea is along the top of that. We're going to get these out to you guys at Hastings as well. It just says at the top of this, living uh, good lives means consistently choosing not to live bad lives. And then what's on the card is is five statements. These come from uh, that commentator, Scott McKnight. Because in his commentary, when he's getting to this discussion, he especially stops and talks about the challenge that teenagers face with these areas and that young adults face in these areas. All of us struggle with sin across the board, but when you think about these particular sins and the abuse of sex and alcohol and parties and that whole culture, this is particularly an area of struggle and temptation for teens and young adults. And Scott McKnight was writing uh, about those challenges in particular, about his own kids in that kind of age. And he just writes these five resolutions that I, I really loved. I really liked them, and so I wanted to print them up and give them out to you. And if you want to take this and put it somewhere, as part of arming yourself with the mindset of Jesus every day, I want to invite you to do that. But this is what Scott McKnight wrote. What does it mean to live a good life? What does it mean to choose not to live a bad one? He says, number one, it means I resolve that I will not conform to the sinful habits of my peers and my friends. Number two, it means I will remain faithful to the teachings of Jesus by living faithfully and obediently. Number three, it means I will endure lonely nights and few friends if that's what it takes to live for God. Number four, it means I will find my friends, my closest friends, and those who seek with me to be obedient to Jesus. And five, it means I will look forward to the day when God shows that faithfulness rather than acceptance by my peers is the truer virtue. really love that. My prayer is that for all of us, whether we're young or old, Whether we're married or single, whether we've been following with Jesus for years, or this is very new to us, we will arm ourselves with the mindset of Jesus. Say, I'm done with sin. We will take this seriously. We will seek to the very best of our ability, in the power of His Spirit and in response to His grace, to consistently choose not to live. Bad lives because that's part of living a good life. Let me pray for us. Our Father, we come to you today acknowledging once again our brokenness and our sin. As followers of Jesus, we we know this struggle intimately. On one hand, what Peter says is true, we've got this deep desire within each of our hearts. We want to live for you. No matter how many times we stuff up, there's something in us, in the core of our heart, placed there by your spirit, this desire. We want to honour you and we want to serve you. And yet for many of us, the reality of this constant battle and warfare with temptation and sin and desire is sometimes overwhelming. God, I want to pray today for anyone sitting here or listening to this who doesn't know Jesus. Pray that they will understand the seriousness of the judgment to come. And I pray that they will run to you today and put their faith in you today while your mercy and grace is available because it won't be that day. God, I want to pray for people in the room today, for those of us who who are really struggling with sin. Maybe materialism has a huge grasp on our hearts. Maybe we struggle with pornography. Maybe we struggle with a, a battle with, with the bottle or with drugs that we may not have even told someone else. God, for all of us struggling deeply with sin that we can't shake, pray it help us. But realize again the wonder of your grace, that we are loved and accepted, and we never can and never will deserve it. Thank you that in your grace and on the basis of the beauty of Jesus you forgive again and again and again. Help us to embrace that grace and because of that grace resolve to live for you. And God for all of us sometimes we get so worn down battling and fighting we just want to give up. Would you help us to resolve today, to live for you and honor you and glorify you. Jesus, we come to you today. We say we need you in your name. Amen.